0: The passage that we're considering from Mark this morning presents us with a wonderful picture of God's mercy, but also with a stern warning to have an honest and accurate view of ourselves. The setting for this passage is the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, a town which served as Jesus' home base while he was in the region of Galilee. It was also the town in which the apostles Peter and Andrew and their cousins James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had a fishing business. Christ preached in the synagogue there and also performed a number of miracles in or near this town. In fact, in Matthew 11, verse 23, we're told that Christ rebuked the town for its lack of repentance, saying, "'And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies?' No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Therefore, we must take careful note that whenever we are privileged enough to hear the word of God or to see his mighty grace at work, we will be held accountable if we don't acknowledge and respond to it. And we here at Grace Valley Christian Center have the privilege continually So, we should be very careful to not let God's words fall to the ground. Our passage begins in verse 13 by telling us that once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And the once again indicates that this was something that Jesus had done a number of times before. Capernaum was indeed a privileged town. And then we're told that either while teaching or perhaps after finishing his teaching, Jesus called a tax collector named Levi to follow him, as we read in verse 14. And this Levi, of course, is also known by the name Matthew, the apostle who wrote the gospel that bears that name. And the name Matthew means gift of the Lord. And some postulate that the name was given to him by Jesus in much the same way that he gave Simon the name Peter. We don't know a great deal about this man, Levi, or Matthew. All three of the Synoptic Gospels tell us about his being called, but other than this and his showing up in the list of the apostles and the gospel that bears his name, we know nothing more about him. I want to consider this passage under five headings this morning. We will first look at Jesus' teaching, and then secondly, we will examine Jesus' call, And then thirdly, Levi's response. And fourthly, we will look at the world's disdain. And then finally, God's response. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' teaching. We aren't told how much of Jesus' teaching Levi heard before he was called, but it's reasonable to assume that he at least knew the basic message that Christ had been preaching. And what was that basic message? Well, we're given a short summary in Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come could also be translated as the time is fulfilled, as it is in the ESV version. The idea is that Christ came in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies made about him. He is the Messiah first promised to Adam and Eve in the garden and who was then progressively revealed to his people over nearly 2,000 years. God created this universe for a purpose, which is to glorify himself in part by creating his church, his holy people, the bride of Christ, and then to bring them to a new heaven and new earth to spend eternity with him. And all of history is unfolding according to God's plan to fulfill that purpose. And central to that purpose is the life and work of Jesus Christ, who came to save his people. Jesus is the son of David, the heir to David's throne. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah, who would take up our infirmities and carry our sorrows be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He is the son of man seen by Daniel. He is the only Savior and Lord of all creation. And he declared that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God, of course, implies the rule of God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we read in Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, that he told them to begin by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness in the new heaven and earth, it will be the home of righteousness, and everyone will do God's will perfectly and with great joy. And that kingdom is near. God is bringing it to fruition through a process. And Jesus came to defeat Satan and purchase the freedom of all of God's people. And if you have been called into that kingdom, you have been called to a life of obedience to God's revealed will. And so Jesus taught that we must repent and believe the good news. We must repent because we are all rebels who were born sinners, and we sin every single day. As King David wrote in Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We have done that which God commanded us not to do, and we have failed to do that which God commanded us to do. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, There is no one righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then in Romans 8, 5 through 8, he tells us that those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. The mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We are spiritually dead, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The obvious conclusion from all of this is that we must repent, which means to change our minds and turn away from those wicked ways. But in addition, we must believe. When we turn from sin and self-reliance, we must turn to Jesus Christ and trust him completely. True repentance and faith always come together. They are two sides of the same coin. We must acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he is, God, the great I am. Jehovah, the only self-existent, independent, creator, redeemer, savior, and Lord of the universe. We must believe him when he declared in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, he claimed absolute exclusivity. There is no other way to be saved from eternal hell but to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. All other religions and all so-called Christian churches that do not preach the true gospel found in the Bible are false and cannot save anyone. We must believe Jesus when he said in John 10.30 that I and the Father are one. We must believe, as we read in Mark 2.10, that he has the authority to forgive sins, which is something that only God can do. That is why he taught with authority, not as the teachers of the law, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he told us in Matthew 16, verse 24, that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, we must die to ourselves and walk in obedience to our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so it is in the context of this teaching that we come to my next point, Jesus' call. In our text and in the parallel texts, Jesus' call to Levi consisted of just two words, follow me. It's in the imperative mood in the Greek, so it's a command, not a suggestion or a request. Jesus told us as we read in Matthew 22, verse 14, that many are invited, but few are chosen. And in this case, we know for certain, because of Levi's response, that he was chosen and that he received Jesus' effectual call. In other words, he was born again or regenerated. We don't know exactly when that happened. It could certainly have been before. But having been regenerated, he obeyed his Lord. So when Jesus commanded, follow me, Levi responded. And we must pause to consider the nature of God's call. First, it was incredibly gracious. Levi was a rebellious sinner, as we all are, but he was a particularly notorious sinner. In the Jewish culture of the time, tax collectors were despised. The Roman government did not collect taxes directly from the people. Instead, they contracted with individuals to collect the taxes, and those individuals were supposed to collect more than the actual tax. That was how they made their money. But these tax collectors were reviled as traitors by the Jewish people, first because they served the Roman government, and second because they were almost always dishonest and became rich by exploiting the people and collecting far more than they needed to. Therefore, Jesus calling a tax collector to be his disciple was a scandalous thing in the eyes of most Jews, but it was also simultaneously a great demonstration of God's grace. God does not see us as men and women, black and white, smart and dumb, good-looking or not, tall or short, or any of these externalities. He views us all as fallen human beings made in the image of God, and he chose us based on his own perfectly free will, not based on anything in us that makes us worthy, and not because he foresaw that we would accept his offer. And the second thing we should note about the nature of this call is that it is efficacious. It has its desired effect. Now, it's obviously not true that everyone who hears the gospel will respond in repentance and faith. But whenever God issues his specific efficacious call, it cannot fail. Now, that should be obvious. How on earth could a mere creature effectively oppose the will of the Creator? God tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And in Romans 8, verse 30, Paul tells us that those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is not a complete list of the items in the order of salvation, but it again makes clear that God's specific calling of those he has predestinated is an effectual call. It always results in regeneration which then brings forth the fruit of repentance and faith, by which we are united to Christ and justified in God's sight. And we will be glorified. Praise God. Therefore, the third thing we note about God's call is that God is sovereign over all the affairs of men, including their salvation. And this should be a great comfort to us. If my salvation depended ultimately on me, I would be lost. But praise God, the fact that it depends on God gives me confidence that as Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we see that God's call is gracious, efficacious, and sovereign. But we should not conclude that we do nothing. Quite the opposite. If we have been chosen and called by God, we most certainly will respond in repentance and faith. And that is just what Levi did. So let's move on to my third point and look at Levi's response. We read in our passage that when Jesus said, follow me, Levi got up and followed him. In other words, he didn't delay to take care of worldly concerns. He didn't stop and ask Jesus to tell him exactly what he was going to be required to do. He didn't ask where Jesus was headed. He simply got up and followed. And that is true faith. In the parallel account in Luke 5, verse 28, we're told that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. We can't come to God with any conditions or limitations, and we can't hold on to the world at the same time. We must surrender fully and commit our lives to the service of God. We must place our trust completely in Jesus Christ. And doing so is the most reasonable thing a human being can possibly do. Because God alone knows the future, and it's because he has ordained it and holds it in his hand. And he alone is able to help us in any and every circumstance. In Romans 8.31, Paul asked the rhetorical question, If God is for us, who can be against us? And the obvious answer is that no one can effectively oppose us if God is for us. In fact, we can do nothing outside of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We read in John 15.5 that Jesus himself said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, we can't even sin without Jesus upholding us. Just think about that. When you sin, it is Jesus Christ who is sustaining your life while you sin. And if we meditate on that fact, it should help us to not sin. What an affront to Jesus Christ to disobey him while he himself is keeping you alive and enabling you to do so. And Levi didn't just obey by following Jesus and giving up his lucrative position as a tax collector. He also held a banquet to thank and honor Jesus and invited a number of his former friends and colleagues to attend. We're told in Luke 5.29 that it was a great banquet, not just a normal dinner. Levi obviously wanted to share the good news that Jesus saves sinners, and more specifically, that Jesus had saved him. Jesus saved a wretched, greedy, selfish, despised tax collector, and Jesus can save you and me as well. Reverend Broderick spoke about the leper who was healed by Christ a couple of weeks ago, and this man was so excited based on what God had done for him that even though Christ had told him not to speak, he went out and spoke. Now, we certainly don't condone disobeying Jesus Christ, but as Reverend Broderick pointed out, we have been told to speak. And so we should go out and tell what God has done for us. And Levi did just that. He held a great banquet to honor and thank Jesus. And we're told that he invited all kinds of sinners and tax collectors. And take note of the fact that the word sinners is in quotes in your Bible. If the word were used with its normal plain meaning, it wouldn't provide a useful description of the people who attended the dinner. After all, We're all sinners. It's not a limiting term in that sense. But the word is in quotes because it was spoken by the Pharisees. We read in verse 16 that when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Pharisees were a particular sect of Jews who were very zealous to keep the law of God in all of its details. They had many rules that had to be followed, and Jesus frequently criticized them for allowing their rules and traditions to overrule the word of God. They looked down on people who didn't follow all of these rules and called them sinners as a pejorative term to distinguish them from themselves. It was this hypocritical self-righteousness that Christ spoke against with the greatest fervor. Their acts of so-called piety were done for men to see. They had absolute disdain for the gospel call to repentance and faith. And that leads to my fourth point, the world's disdain. The world looks down on Christians. We're viewed as being weak. Unable to face the harsh reality of death. We need a crutch to help us get along. But take note that we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, as we read in 1 John 5.19. Satan hates Jesus Christ, and he hates his followers. He knows he's already defeated, and his own eternal damnation is certain, But his hatred drives him to oppose God with all of his power. And since he can't do anything to harm God directly, he goes after God's children. And Satan uses human beings to attack us. Remember that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Notice that these Pharisees didn't accuse Jesus to his face. They went to his disciples. We read in verse 16 that they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were hoping to plant seeds of doubt and draw these people away from following Christ. Satan and his demons are doomed, and as the old saying goes, misery loves company. So Satan wants you to be doomed as well. He doesn't want you to pay attention to God's warnings and his gracious offer of salvation. He wants you to be distracted or asleep and pay no attention to this sermon. He wants you to be completely absorbed in this life and to seek its pleasures alone. But the pleasures of this life are no match for heaven, and they pass away in a short time. So be intelligent. Think about eternity. Be on your guard. Have you ever noticed that most people aren't running around crying out, "'What must I do to be saved?' Most people seem to be blissfully unaware of the fact that they are hurtling toward eternal hell. They are suppressing the truth and are being deceived by Satan, who keeps them focused on each day's troubles and pleasures. In commenting on our passage, Matthew Henry noted that people who were physically ill sought Jesus out so that he could heal them. But it was Jesus who sought out sinners to save them. And that is a sadly ironic truth. God himself tells us the same thing. In Romans 10, verse 20, the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah 65, 1 and wrote, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Our greatest need, in fact, our only eternal need, is to be reconciled to God And yet most people don't see that. Satan blinds them, and they suppress the truth. The joys and cares of this life consume all their energy and attention. But our greatest need, in fact, as I said, our only eternal need, is to be reconciled to God. We need our sins to be taken away, and we need perfect righteousness so that we can come into God's presence for all eternity. The world mocks the idea of needing a savior, and they look on us with utter disdain. The world will tell you that God doesn't exist, and that when you die, you simply cease to exist. So grow up and face the facts. Salvation, if we can use the term at all, is to be found here on earth. So they will tell you that you should join with the so-called progressives as they push for that goal. And even those who claim to believe in God mostly mock the idea of a wrathful God who requires a sacrifice to pay for our sins and perfect righteousness to come into his presence. They have a God with a standard so low that you can meet it through your own effort or through the sacraments of the church. But that is not the God who created this universe and has revealed himself to us in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ, and such a false God will not help you in the end. The real living God tells us in Matthew five forty-eight, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The real living God tells us in Romans three twenty that no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But you may object that God presents us with an impossible task. None of us is perfect. And we can never do anything that would pay the infinite penalty we owe for sinning against this infinite God. But, praise God, what is impossible with men is possible with God, as we read in Luke 18.27. Which is why Paul goes on in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22 to say, "...but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify." This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, we are sinners, but Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. We cannot pay the debt we owe, but Jesus Christ, as infinite God, can and did pay it for us. If you will repent of your sins and believe in him, then his death on the cross will pay for your sins and you will be clothed in his perfect righteousness. Oh, friends, do you see your need for a savior? If you had cancer, you would want someone to tell you so that it could be treated. But I'm here to tell you that you have something infinitely worse than cancer. Cancer can only kill the body. But as Jesus told us in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you are right now an enemy of the eternal God and subject to his eternal wrath. He is graciously giving you life and health, and he has brought you here this morning to hear the gospel. Of salvation, but you must respond in faith. God is calling. Don't be like the Pharisees who didn't think that they needed a Savior. Don't let Satan deceive you. Cry out for mercy. And that brings me to my fifth and final point God's response. Notice carefully what we read next in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And let me read from the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, because it provides a little more detail. In Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13, we're told that on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus' response to these Pharisees, which is God's response, was to point out that he didn't come to save anyone who self-righteously thinks that he doesn't need a savior. He uses the example of a physical illness and points out that only sick people need doctors, but don't take that metaphor too far as I said before, you if you're outside of Christ, you're not just sick, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And Matthew records the additional statement, which is very important. Jesus told them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is a quote from Hosea 6, verse 6. Prophet Hosea spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel prior to its being defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and he warned the people about their complacency, apostasy, and false religion. And in Hosea 6.6, 6, we read that God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The Hebrew word translated as mercy in that verse is hesed, and could also be translated as steadfast love. The word implies a faithful covenant love. The message is clear and was not only appropriate for the Jews in Hosea's day and the Pharisees at the time of Christ, but is perfectly appropriate for us today, here and now. God does not accept ritualistic, formulaic, or man-centered worship. He only accepts worship that comes from a humble and contrite heart that truly loves Him as the covenant Lord and creator of all. And I must add that when I speak about loving God, I most emphatically do not mean what that term often conveys in our modern church world. I do not mean that we have some kind of warm and fuzzy feeling about a God of our own imagination, a God who is always kind and non judgmental, a God who would never hate anyone or pour out his wrath on anyone, a God who is always nice. A God who is concerned that we have a wonderful life here and now. No, when I speak about loving God, I mean that we have a true biblical covenant love for the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. The God who is a consuming fire. The God who is wrathful towards sin. The God who created hell in addition to heaven. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who gave us the Ten Commandments. And as Jesus told us in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will obey what I command. This is the God I proclaim to you, because in Matthew twenty eight nineteen and 20, Christ commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he gave us a very wonderful promise. He said, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Friends, religion may provide you with comfort. You can gather together with like-minded people. You can sing, hear stories, and participate in good social projects and so on. But it cannot save you. Only true, godly repentance and true, trusting, obedient faith in Jesus Christ can save you. You must be born again. You must cry out to God to have mercy on you and enable you to repent and believe. And if you have been born again and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You must examine your life to see whether or not you possess the obedience of faith. In 1 John 4.20, we're told that if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has seen. And you don't get to choose who you have as your brother or sister. Just as in a natural family, God decides who your brothers and sisters are, So if you love God, that love should be manifested here in the local church where God has placed you with the brothers and sisters God has given to you. You must serve one another. You must each seek to know, develop, and use your gifts and resources for the benefit of everyone else in the church. We must put our selfishness to death. We are all part of the body of Christ It is only in our relations with each other that we can practice and demonstrate true Christian love. And so in conclusion, God is calling. Follow Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in his redeeming sacrifice. Acknowledge and embrace him as Lord. And then go forth and live for his glory, telling others about this marvelous Savior. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I have delivered the words you gave me to speak. Be pleased by your Holy Spirit to save all those whom you have appointed for eternal life and to strengthen the body of Christ, that we may be a light shining forth in this dark world. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.